I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan. Right now on Last Call, the Red Sea turning red hot. The turmoil in the Middle East ratchets up significantly. The new king of EVs, how China just left Tesla and other U.S. automakers eating dust. Bitcoin kicks off 2024 with a bang, but there's an eerie parallel investors may want to see. Digging a deeper hole, why New York and California could soon make their financial situation even worse. Plus the last straw, Harvard's president resigns amid a storm of controversy, but it's not ending the battle between the Ivy League University and Wall Street donors. And streamflation may finally have reached a breaking point. We have eye-opening new numbers. All that and more over the next hour. Last Call is up right now. The first last call of the new year, and we kick it off with a rocky road for Wall Street. The Dow hit 37,715. It was enough to set a new record, but the S&P 500 dropped more than half a percent. And the big story was the biggest loser. It was the Nasdaq. It saw its worst day since October. It was the worst first day of the year performance since 2016. Now, yields jumped higher with 10-year treasuries climbing above 3.9 percent for the first time since Christmas. Big tech stocks got crushed, including the Magnificent Seven. Apple dropped 4% on a downgrade from Barclays. NVIDIA, the darling of the S&P 500 and its top performer of 2023, fell 3%. Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, Meta, and Tesla also finished lower. But take a look at this. Curiously, three of 2023's biggest duds kicked off the year strong, with Pfizer, Verizon, and Walgreens all seeing nice gains, more than 3% for Pfizer and Verizon, to start the year. So the big question on investors' minds, is there enough fuel to keep driving this record run? Despite a mostly disappointing day on Wall Street, the S&P 500 is just 1.5% from its all-time high, and tomorrow marks exactly two years since that record was set. We begin with a record start for this new year for the markets. The S&P and Dow closing at new all-time highs to kick off 2022. That was CNBC's Fast Money on January 3rd, 2022. The bulls were running wild on Wall Street, but market mayhem followed. And the S&P 500 finished 2022 down 19%. So will history repeat itself? Or is this bull run different? Let's talk about it with our lead-off panel. Clio Capital Managing Director Sarah Kunst and Senior Vice President at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management, Katerina Simonetti. It's nice to see both of you ladies today. Appreciate it. Sarah, let me kick it off with you. So I know that there's some skepticism on your part about the Magnificent Seven and whether we should be putting our eggs in that basket this year. My argument is that that is seven different baskets that just sort of sit close together. Uh, It's not a monolith. And we've seen that no one listens to me on that. We've seen that the the (laughs) stock have been, you know, they've been roaring the last couple of years, but now a lot of them are running into headwinds. I mean, Tesla is no longer the biggest EV manufacturer. 
Uh, you know, Apple had their downgrade today, which was not great. It seems unlikely that their headset's going to save them. You know, Microsoft and NVIDIA had years last year that just don't get repeated. They're not going to they're not going to see those kinds of runs again this year. And so when you have over half of the Magnificent Seven for totally unrelated reasons that aren't necessarily all bad, having a pretty tough time of it, uh, it, it starts to make you wonder, is this index really going to go the direction that we're used to? And, and I don't think so. You know, it's interesting, Katerina, because when you look at those gains for the Magnificent Seven, it has all been rah, rah, let's join in the hoopla. But really, we're just getting back to the point where we started 2022 at. So how much of this really does deserve to be bull run status and how much of this is, oh, we've just made up what we lost? Contessa, thank you for having me on the show and Happy New Year. And you're right, what two years this has been. And uh, we have to remind ourselves that not only this is the first trading day of the new year, this is the also first tax day of the new year. And the performance in the Magnificent Seven, not just over 2023, but over the longer run, you know, has been nothing but magnificent. And when you look at the possibility of taking some profits off the table, it makes perfect sense to do this because even not concentrated portfolios, even just well-diversified portfolios, most likely had exposure to these seven names. So this is in my opinion, a perfectly expected behavior of investors starting the new year, taking some profits off the table, and also reminding themselves that market is cyclical and market leadership is cyclical. And for 2023, in order to position portfolios for success, we need to perhaps look elsewhere. Okay, well, let's dive into that then. How are you, Katerina, positioning portfolios for success in 2024? Contessa, we are looking at 2023 as the year that perhaps not going to be the most exciting and our expectations that we're going to end the year might be at the same exact level where we're at right now, but this still makes us really excited about the possibility because for us, this is a year that is going to set the stage for the next bull market. So we're concentrating on quality names, stocks with positive cash flows, stocks that have not taken advantage of that rally, that hasn't participated in the rally, that didn't have that growth in them yet, just like very similar to the names that were on the screen a second ago. I mean, we're you, say, you say it may not be exciting, but you're, you're actually putting your year-end price target of the S&P 500 at 4,500, uh, roughly 200 points lower than where we ended today. I would say that's I mean, that potentially could be exciting if you think that we're taking a leg lower. It, you know, it's it's interesting how much um, optimism we've seen in the market over the last couple of months. And perhaps it's a little bit, you know, the investors getting ahead of, them, ahead of themselves. But it does not mean that we are pessimistic. It just means that we're realistic. It means that the path to the growth laced through volatility. And we're expecting a lot of volatility in 23. Sarah, it's interesting because we saw such a freeze on any kind of IPO activity for much of 2023. Do you think that we're going to see that propelling some gains and some growth in 2024? 
I certainly think we will on a few different sides. We have names like Sheehan that, you know, have filed. We have names like Reddit, where there's news coming out again that that they're potentially interested this year. And I personally cannot imagine what Wall Street Bets is going to do when Reddit IPOs. But, you know, we have these tech companies that are big, popular consumer companies that they need to to go public uh, or raise more. And the reality is that, that M&A is a door that's largely shut right now for tech companies. We're seeing the Figma deal. You know, that the, the Activision, the kind of will they, won't they, these have been really tough times to do MA. And so, for these really big companies who need liquidity, who can't necessarily go out and keep raising from the crossover funds of the world forever because that those dollars have largely dried up, they're going to have to do something. And I think that we will see more IPOs this year, and that could be a bright spot. I, you know, I talked to another uh, portfolio manager earlier today who said to me, I just question why the markets are underpricing the threat of global instability, that the macro political situation looks rather tenuous. How much are you factoring that in, Sarah? I think for venture, it's a little bit different because we're looking so far out. The reality is if the world blows up, then it doesn't matter what bets we're placing right now because they're not getting priced out for another 10, 15 years of IPOs. And in the shorter term, the day-to-day, we're writing into illiquid companies that aren't going to be yeah. you know, subject to the public markets for a long time. So that's that's not top of mind day-to-day. Katarina, what about for you? Uh, Contessa, for us, it's not just geopolitical risks. It's also the fact that we're going into election year, which is certainly is going to affect the consumer behavior. But with that, reality also is that 2023, we're probably going to see lower rates. We're going to see inflation that will be more in, in, in line with Fed expectations, improved earnings. So there is a lot to be excited about, but we still need to get there. Katerina, Sarah, thank you, ladies, for joining me. Happy New Year. Let's make it a good one. Let's go into the market now and check out our studs and duds of the day. And there you're seeing it. Look at Moderna up 13.1% after an Oppenheimer analyst said more products are in the pipeline for the company, which then positions Moderna to boost sales. On the other hand, the biggest loser, Norwegian Cruise Line, down 8.6%. Maybe this is some profit taking because, of course, Norwegian shares shot up more than 50% in 2023. Let's take a look at futures right now. It looks roughly flat. I mean, we're seeing green, but that's flat, folks. Up next, a major escalation in the Red Sea crisis. Why are oil prices now falling? I'm trying to make some sense of that. Plus the huge wake-up call for Tesla and U.S. EV makers, courtesy of China. Stay with us. Let's get to tomorrow's news tonight, the stories you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow. And first up, Bloom and Brands has named two new directors in an agreement with activist investor Starboard, former Darden operating chief Dave George and Starboard partner John Sagal will become board members. George will also serve as chair on a new operating committee with Sagal as a member. The announcement's giving Bloom, Bloom and Shares a nice little pop here in after hours trading up 4.36%. Next up, some less than magical news for the Magic Kingdom. For the first time since 2015, Disney did not claim the title of global box office leader. For 2023, that title goes to dun, 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 Universal Pictures. The studio raked in $4.9 billion in worldwide ticket sales for the year, while Disney collected $4.8 billion. 
Universal is, of course, owned by our parent company, which means that, of course, I have to give the little sound effects, too. Dun, 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 dun. Finally, a big fine for Carolina Panthers owner David Tepper. The NFL has fined Tepper $300,000 for throwing a drink into the crowd during Sunday's game. In a statement, Tepper says, in part, uh, quote, I'm deeply passionate about this team and regret my behavior on Sunday. I respect the NFL's code of conduct and accept the league's discipline for my behavior. End of quote. By the way, $300,000 fine, but Tepper's worth about $17 billion, which makes that Tepper temper somewhat affordable. It's been a rough day on the Red Sea. Maersk, the Danish shipping giant, is halting all shipping there until further notice. It follows an attack from Iran-backed Houthi militants. According to U.S. Central Command, U.S. Navy helicopters responded to distress calls from the Maersk ship, eventually sinking three of the attacking boats. Another fled the area. Oil prices appeared to just shrug it off, initially spiking, but they slipped nearly 2%, settling at $70 a barrel. That's the lowest close since mid-December. How should investors factor in the potential for disruptions in the energy market? Bob McNally is the founder and the president of Rapidan Energy Group, also the author of Crude Volatility, The History and the Future of Boom-Bust Oil Prices. It's good to talk to you today. Thank you for being here on Last Call, Bob. Hi, Contessa. Thanks for having me on. Talk to me a little bit about what's happening in the Red Sea and the way it may affect what we're seeing for global energy supplies. Yeah, so since in mid-December, the Houthis uh, began attacking commercial shipping, uh, folks have been concerned about that key shortcut from Asia to Europe. And then oil, a lot of Russian oil flows from Russia to Asia through that shortcut. Uh, about 12% of traded oil, 8% of traded LNG goes through there. But, you know, the Red Sea uh, for the global economy and oil markets is sort of like a a royal pain in the tush. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a it's it's a problem, but it's a problem that you can work around. You will pay more. You will spend an extra two weeks going around Africa if you can't get through. And so far, you know the Houthis are letting the Russians through, and there hasn't been a massive disruption yet. The much bigger risk, and the risk that the oil market was responding to briefly this morning, as you mentioned, when the Iranians put a frigate in the Red Sea is the Strait of Hormuz or a conflict with Iran. That is more like a heart attack for the global economy than a royal pay in the tush. When you saw the headlines crossing about uh, an assassination in Lebanon of a Hamas leader, what are your thoughts about the way that has the potential to escalate and, and disrupt energy supplies even further? Right. You know, it may seem counterintuitive, but I think we ought to be much more uh, vigilant about uh, a conflict between Israel and Lebanon. I know the Biden administration is, and many leaders are, than about the Iranians putting an old frigate uh, in the Red Sea, which could be taken care of in a few minutes. The real risk of a of a oil price spike and a, a truly devastating economic problem would be as if this conflict expanded to include Iran. And the path to that lies through southern Lebanon, where Iran's main proxy, Hezbollah, is very powerful, much more powerful than Hamas. And the Israelis today did something they haven't done since 2006. They launched an attack into Beirut, the capital, and killed a senior Hamas official, not Hezbollah. 
But by doing that, they really inflicted a humiliation on Hezbollah. And now we wait to see how aggressive will Hezbollah be? Will they extend their, their attacks beyond the border regions in Israel uh, and go into central Israel? They have the weapons to do that. And so we'll see. But it, that is a much more dangerous sort of a, a place than I would think even the Red Sea from a global standpoint. RBC Capital Markets says about 12 percent of global trade typically would go through the Red Sea area, about three million barrels of crude. I'm wondering, when you're advising your clients about how to position themselves for this volatility, how much pressure do you think the Biden administration is going to put on Israel um, and, and other diplom di diplomatic efforts in the Middle East because we're going into an election year, because if energy supplies are disrupted, gas prices could go up and gas prices affect how the Americans feel about the economy. Absolutely, Contessa. I worked for a president in the White House as an energy advisor and Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter. They all fear gasoline price spikes like the plague. Certainly President Biden has reason to fear that in the last couple of years. So their priority is to avoid a gasoline price spike, keep crude oil prices heading downward, which they have been since September. That is why they are scrambling, and the president's energy advisor, Amos Huckstein especially, is scrambling to head off the real risk of an oil price spike, which is not the Red Sea. It is a war between Israel and Hezbollah that extends to Iran, and they're trying diplomacy. You know, the Israelis do not want Hezbollah on their northern border. But do you think, gonna... do you think mm -hmm. Bob, then, then the markets are just shrugging off the bull case for oil? I do. I, I do think the markets are complacent about um, geopolitical disruption risk. I'm not saying it's 80 percent. We happen to tell our clients there's a 30 percent chance of a material oil supply interruption. But I would say the market is discounting closer to 5 percent mm. or something like that. So it's not that it's 90 percent, but it is not zero. And I think the, there's a little complacency out there in the markets about this. Bob, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. A quick programming note here. Tune in Thursday, January 4th, for a big last call with a special live show from Miami. Brian will be there to speak with Chevron CEO Michael Wirth, Royal Caribbean CEO Jason Liberty, billionaire real estate investor Don Peebles, and the head of oil research at Goldman Sachs, Don Stroyven, to get his take on where oil and gas may be going next year, along with some special guests throughout the day. So Thursday, a Miami edition of Last Call Live at 7 Eastern. Bienvenida a Miami. Still ahead, an EV coup for China and a day of reckoning for Tesla and U.S. automakers. Stay with us. Welcome back to Last Call. I'm Contessa Brewer in tonight for Brian Sullivan. Tesla continues to dominate global EV sales, but in this past quarter, a Chinese automaker claims the number one spot. CNBC's Phil LeBeau joins us now. You got those latest delivery numbers. Phil, how's it looking? 
Uh, Contessa, we'll talk about BYD becoming king of the hill, at least in the fourth quarter. But let's start first off with Tesla, because the numbers that it reported for the fourth quarter, they were better than expected. They topped estimates in terms of what they were planning to produce as well as deliver in the fourth quarter, with deliveries coming in at 485,000 vehicles for the uh, fourth quarter. And in terms of annual deliveries, they surpassed their own guidance of 1.8 million vehicles, delivering 1.81 for 2024, the estimate is delivering 2.1 million. That's according to analysts. By the way, that's a 16% increase. Not a huge increase, just 16%. But again, that's just the estimate from analysts. Q4 earnings will be coming on January 24th. That's when we'll hear from Elon Musk. And the focus that day, in addition to their guidance for 24 sales, will be what happens with auto gross margins. That's been a disappointment in a couple of the recent quarters for Tesla. Now to BYD. As you take a look at shares of BYD, it did outsell Tesla in the fourth quarter with uh, EV sales for all of 23 coming in at 1.57 million. So for the year of 2023, Tesla is still the leader coming in at 1.81 compared to 1.57 for BYD, but BYD is gaining on Tesla. And then there's Rivian, which also reported its fourth quarter results today with production coming in at 57,232 vehicles, well above the company's guidance of a building at least 54,000, deliveries topping 50,000 vehicles, but that was down 10% compared to uh, in the fourth quarter compared to the third quarter. And that's a little bit of the reason why there was some pressure on shares of Rivian. They did product, uh, top their production guidance, but they're adjusting their Q2 and Q3 production. They've said that for some time. So that's going to be some choppier results that we can expect over the next couple of quarters. We'll hear more about the outlook for Rivian from founder and CEO RJ Scaringe on February 21st. Contessa? Does it matter, Phil? Does it matter who's delivering more EVs, especially if a lot of them are in China, which has all kinds of subsidies and, and has placed the bigger priority. Right. Well, look, and profitability ultimately is, is what you want, first and foremost, if you're an automaker and an EV company. And Tesla can say, look, we're profitable. And look at a lot of the legacy automakers who are not profitable. But scale matters, Contessa. In the EV world, scale matters. And the big race right now is for developing the lower-priced electric vehicle. The company that can do that effectively and on a broad scale is the company that's going to get to the riches quicker than others who are really struggling with their scale when it comes to EV battery production and getting the models uh, ready to go. Phil LeBeau, thank you. Is BYD's EV dominance a sign that Chinese EV makers are in position to lap those in the U.S.? Or really, does Tesla have time to secure its lead? Former Ford CEO and CNBC contributor Mark Fields has some insight into what Tesla is up against. I mean, if scale is the goal here, Mark, is BYD, are the Chinese EV makers getting the advantage because their government has made that a priority for so long? Well, it, it is. And the reason being is that the, the Chinese government has prioritized uh, electric vehicle te technology for, for a lot of years now. And they've literally spent billions of dollars, both in terms of tax incentives and subsidiary uh, uh, subsidies, to, to grow this market, this homegrown market in, in China. Everything from the mining piece of the business to the refining of the elements like uh, that go into the uh, the batteries, uh, such as lithium, 
all the way to the battery production. So, you know, that 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 kind of support really, you know, urged Chinese companies to really invest in these areas. And so when you look at the the supply chain, uh, China's in a in a pretty good pole position, but it's it's not a position that the Western automakers can't compete if they actually, you know, work very hard to develop their domestic supply chain. So the game is not over, but clearly China has a head start and it's because they put billions of dollars into this sector. Phil mentioned that who can who can build this affordable EV also has a better chance of achieving the scale and the kind of profitability and getting there first. We did see price cuts from Tesla this year, but do you think that the Chinese EV makers are going to make cars that are more accessible to more people around the globe, and Tesla will be left with this more aspirational vehicle purchase? Well, when you look at BYD right now, the reason that they beat Tesla in the in the fourth quarter is they have, they have a, a much wider range or broader range of products at much lower price points. Mm-hmm. So when you look at what BYD has done, they've taken, obviously, advantage of the government incentives, uh, but they've grown scale. And that's allowed them uh, to have a very, very good cost position. I mean, you know, by various analysts, they say, you know, BYD might have a 20 to 25 percent cost advantage versus the Western automakers. So it does allow them to have scale. It does allow them to uh, reinforce their export uh, ambitions and also to produce locally and export markets. But at the same time, you have some of the Western governments, whether it's the U.S. or Europe now, taking a look at all those subsidies and saying, hey, we're, we're potentially going to put some tariffs on there and allow our own uh, automakers to develop their supply chain to get that scale. But as, as Phil said, you know, that low cost thirty to $25,000 EV is what's going to get us from early adoption to mass adoption here in the U.S. and around the world. And, and of course, then there's the whole infrastructure thing, because a lot of what's standing in the way and I'm speaking from personal experiences, I don't want to have to think about how long do I have to sit in the car and where is the charger? that I had guests over the holidays that had to go run out and charge a vehicle at a, at a charging station because there was nothing else on the way home. The other thing is we have seen domestic automakers, the legacy automakers, tapping the brakes on EVs. Is, is, is this just going to be China's game? I mean, should, should they surrender the race now? Uh, absolutely not. This is this is not a this is not a hundred meter race. This is a this is a marathon here, and we're going to see the industry around the world obviously transition to EVs, albeit over a, a longer period of time than everybody you know all the experts expected <laughs> just a few years ago. Uh, it, but you know when you look at uh, the early adopters of EVs, Condessa, you know their priorities were range and environmental impact. When you get to mass adoption, it's all around affordability, number one, and we talked about that. And the second thing that you mentioned is the charging infrastructures. Customers need to feel comfortable that they'll be able to charge just as easily as they can today with gas stations for their internal combustion yeah. engine. And until you see that, the average person is going to say, when you guys figure that out, then I'll seriously consider EVs. But you know, it's going to be slower than people expected. But it's coming. Mark Fields, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Coming up, an unkillable rally. Bitcoin nears the moment that may change its fate forever. Plus, as the saying goes, when you find yourself in a hole, just stop digging. 
why New York and California may actually dig in and drive away tax revenue. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan. The crypto world on pins and needles tonight awaiting the SEC's decision on spot Bitcoin ETFs. The decision could come at any moment. In anticipation, Bitcoin leapt yet again, crossing the 45,000 mark today. It's highest level since April 2022, right about when this was happening. It's been a wild last few years for the industry. I think what I'm most excited about is where we could get over the next you know, three to five years, where the space could end up, um, all of the industries that it could end up reshaping. Ah, yes, the now convicted crypto fraudster Sam Bankman-Fried with supermodel Giselle Bunchton, along with many other illustrious personalities. They all came together for this blowout inaugural FTX crypto conference in the Bahamas. And then things headed south, way south for crypto soon afterwards. How times have changed. What impact could SEC approval have on the industry? And which companies stand to gain the most should the approvals come through? With us tonight, Dylan LeClaire. He's the head of market research at Bitcoin Magazine and the director of market intelligence at UTXO Management. Dylan, great to talk to you. Thank you for being here on Last Call. Tessa, happy new year. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so first of all, even past the point where is the SEC going to approve this, what's your expectation for Bitcoin? If the approvals come through, will we ever see it drop below the 45,000 mark again? Yeah, I, I think everybody's a little bit too worried about what happens in the next week or in the next month. Really what this is, uh, this is uh, JP Morgan's of the world, the BlackRock's of the world, giving kind of a, a you know a light of approval for Bitcoin as an institutional asset. And the ETF approval really opens the door for these passive flows to come from institutions, right? Where this has mainly been a retail asset for, for a long time. There's the recognition that on a risk-adjusted basis, this is the superior asset. Right. Everybody talks about the volatility. What, what are they missing is the fact that passive allocation on a long time frame puts Bitcoin you know, head and heels above every other asset class. If you start a dollar cost averaging the day Bitcoin hit its all time high until today, you're up 67 percent in Bitcoin compared to 23 percent on the Nasdaq, 11 percent for gold and you're negative on bonds. Right. So that's what people are missing here. This is a much bigger story than just the ETFs. And it's more so BlackRock's and, and, and the JP Morgan's of the world capitulating. Uh, on, on Bitcoin being an important asset. It does appear that companies that made a bet that this was an investable asset, are it's paid off. I mean, if you look at MicroStrategy, which was a, a software company, in 2023, its stock soared 337%. It outgained in terms of percentage NVIDIA and Meta um, and made it one of the biggest gainers in the United States largely because of its holdings in Bitcoin. But do you see a scenario where either because of competition from other crypto or digital dollars, for instance, or just because of the volatility that we've seen that that evaporates? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the most, the most misunderstood uh, story in corporate finance, right? MicroStrategy is a $1.5 billion company in, 20, in, in August of 2020. And by the way, they're still a software company. They're still a business, business intelligence firm. Bitcoin's just their, their, their reserve asset. It's their treasury reserve asset. 
Fast forward to today, they have eight and a half billion in Bitcoin, eleven and a half billion dollar market cap against two and a half billion dollars of longer dated fiat liabilities. Right. This is a masterclass for corporate governance. What sailors doing with selling shares to to buy more Bitcoin, increasing Bitcoin okay, per well, share is, so is very understood. OK, so here's the thing, Dylan. Do you think if this gets approval from the SEC, this ETF, that we will see other forms of cryptocurrency soar as well? Yeah, but I, this is the thing is that people often misconstrue the biggest the biggest story and then they confuse it or kind of muddle the news down with the other crypto, <laughs> the crypto securities, the crypto assets. Bitcoin is a digital monetary network. Mm -hmm. It's if, if this thesis, if this thesis is correct, it's a hundred trillion dollar idea. Right. In a world where fiat currencies and, and debt instruments decay against everything that you want to buy on a long time frame. So it's still very much misunderstood. The FASB corporate accounting uh, guidelines are coming into change at the end of this year, and you can actually carry this forward. So Bitcoin is no longer an intangible asset on the balance sheet, where Michael Saylor and other adopters of this have to mark to market the losses, but not the gains. This it's, is a huge it, story. Yeah. It's not the first time, by the way, that I've been accused of muddling the news, but you did it in such a polite <laughs> way that I, I let it go. <laughs> Dylan, thank you very much. Have a great new year. Thank you so much. Next Appreciate up, could a new wealth tax be on the way for some Californians and New Yorkers, especially for high-earning residents? Lawmakers in both states are proposing a tax amid major declines in state revenue. CNBC's wealth editor, Robert Frank, joins me now. I should just say, you and I have a stake in what you want to talk about here because we pay taxes here, and it's a lot. We be look at the the top tax rate, not that you and I make the top tax rate Whatever. in New York State, which starts at ten million dollars. But uh, you know, it's combined; it's close to fifteen percent. You combine that with federal; it's close to fifty-two percent. And Contessa, you look at the state deficits right now in both New York and California. Now, the economy was strong last year; markets were strong last year. The problem was capital gains revenue, which comes from stock sales, IPOs, private equity deals. All that dried up last year. That has declined a lot, specifically in California and New York. So California now looking at a deficit of $68 billion in the coming fiscal year. New York State looking at a deficit of $4 billion. You add to that the migrant crisis adding maybe $12 billion over the next three years. So they've got this shortfall. As you know, states have to balance budgets. So they either cut costs or they raise revenue. You know, legislatures in both states are very progressive and they say, look, we'd rather then take money from uh, the wealthy and give it to the children yeah. who need it, give it to the migrants who need it. And so uh, right now, the governors of both states are resisting calls, but the legislatures of both states now pushing a wealth tax as their top idea. And, you know, as we know, there are lots of questions whether wealth tax is constitutional. There's now a case before the Supreme Court on a federal level. But on the state level, there is going to be this year, the biggest tax news this year will be the states of California, New York, maybe Illinois, maybe some other high-tax states looking at the possibility of taxing unrealized gains or wealth, not just income as we know it. The interesting thing is we are seeing people fleeing both states. New York has lost more residents than any other state. California's population dropped for the third year in a row. And, and, and it's not, you can't just say, oh, it's a wealth tax, but it's the congestion pricing. It's the, you know, it's, it's the difficulty in getting insurance when you're already paying for everything else. It's a, it's a, an onslaught 
of little tiny paper cuts. Absolutely. It's the cost of living, the true cost of living and the cost of doing business in these states has just gotten to the point where it doesn't make sense for many high earners and companies to stay there. And the problem I think the legislatures have right now is that, you know, they're denying this. In California, there is no question that they lost 27,000 taxpayers who made more than $200,000 between 2020 and 2022. New York State actually had a net gain of millionaires, but that was because of in 2021, we had that stock market boom. And the most recent data we have was at the end of 2021. So we don't know what happened in 2022 and 2023. You and I both know logic tells you mm-hmm. when you have tax increases, when you have cost of living go up the way they're just, you know, the apartment prices, the real estate prices have gone up. People are either leaving for affordability or for lower taxes, Florida, Texas, Nevada. Well, then you have to wonder how soon the gambling regulation comes in. When are they going to build those New York City casinos so that they can get back some of that tax revenue? Robert Frank, thank you, friend. Coming up, a firestorm of controversy brings down Harvard's president, but the fight between the Ivy League and Wall Street donors is, well, it's, it's just not done. Stay with us. A major shakeup in academia today. Harvard President Claudine Gay announced she is stepping down from her role effective immediately. Gay's resignation makes her the shortest serving president in Harvard's history. And the move comes after extensive allegations of plagiarism. But the calls for her to resign have been mounting following testimony on Capitol Hill last month. Gay, along with the presidents of UPenn and MIT, were accused of downplaying anti-Semitism on college campuses amid the Israel-Hamas war. Gay's resignation comes after now former UPenn president Liz McGill stepped down in mid-December. The schools have been under intense pressure from major Wall Street donors like Mark Rowan, a UPenn alum and Apollo Global founder, as well as Pershing Square Capital founder and Harvard alum Bill Ackman. Ackman posted on X shortly after Gay's announcement, et tu, Sally? and an apparent call for MIT president Sally Kornbluth to step down next. If Ackman wasn't enjoying his day already, Pershing Square also just reported a near 27% return in 2023. Joining me now, Yale School of Management Senior Associate Dean, CNBC contributor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. It's good to see you tonight. Jeffrey, talk to me a little bit about the way that elite universities should interpret what's happened, that the the fact that you've had politicians on Capitol Hill gunning for the leadership and major donors doing the same, what does that mean moving forward? A lot of constituent voice here. And obviously, Bill Ackman was quite a catalyst on putting the spotlight on this. And congratulations on Pershing Square and Bill Atlas's other life. Uh, On this front, however, while there are many people saying this decision was long past due, This nobody in higher education and hopefully nobody in Congress, nobody should be gleeful over this. This is a very sad moment. It's uh, this is a 387 year old school and this is a uh, it's a a tragic milestone. It's an issue of consistency of standards. uh, What applies to faculty and students should apply to top administrators. An issue of responsiveness, of honesty, governance, uh, of course, of of voice, academic integrity, courage and and anti-Semitism. The thing that's that's really sad is that should anybody walk away with this saying this has something to do with this, that we should ever allow anybody discrediting 
the great uh, uh, black women academic leaders that we have around the country. I run a, a higher education institute uh, for the presidents of, of 70 uh, colleges and universities. Without doubt, anybody would say, that comes to these events would say our, some of our best are the, the president of Trinity, the president of, um, of Pomona, the, uh, the past president, the president of Wellesley right now, the past president of Brown, the president, presidents of Spelman. These are some of our finest leaders. And, and it's really a shame should this discredit demographically anybody that's and raises a horrific bigotry, but, but the academic integrity is the issue here. And of course the, the, being over-lawyered and underprepared for Congress to uh, tolerate the, the genocide talk. That, because that brought on the scrutiny of her academic work and her academic record, she is making clarifications and, and additions, I understand, to her dissertation and, and other scholarly papers. But it, should that have been enough to oust her from the job? And, and should people who, anybody who's taking over these positions, brace for the onslaught of scrutiny and criticism when they take over uh, a, a lauded university like Harvard. I encourage anybody who is skeptical uh, as a defense, who is defending uh, President Gay, former President Gay, they should just take a look at the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper. The side-by-side -side comparisons are quite stark. Uh, there are some four cases that are very strong where she's just lifted words or slightly revised them. Even an acknowledgement section, she actually stole from a fellow political scientist uh, at Harvard, like, what was she thinking? I mean, how yeah. low can you go? You can't even thank people. But the New York Times came out with something today, which had about 44 additional cases, 43 additional cases. Uh, we, I haven't substantiated those cases, but this is unquestionable. Any any student with a tiny fraction of that, any faculty member, would be severely disciplined. The the penalties for plagiarism are to withdraw. Even and, Senator Kennedy, before he was senator, when he was back there, had to withdraw. And yeah. ten years ago. 70 students had to leave Harvard for, for, the, for cheating. Somebody's got to set a big example and set the tone and set the leadership. Jeffrey, thank you. Appreciate your time. Thank Coming you. up, enough is enough. The breaking point for soaring streaming costs may finally be here. Be right back. Welcome back. For a lot of video consumers, the amount paid for streaming services is going through the roof. Perhaps it's your New Year's resolution to try and get rid of some of those services. Turns out you're not alone. A new report from the Wall Street Journal finds significantly more Americans are starting to hit the cancel button. That could be good news for your money in unexpected ways. Joining me now is Sarah Krause, Los Angeles Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal. I, I mean, I personally think part of it is they have those new uh, services that say, hey, did you know how much you're really paying in subscriptions? And when you look at it and mass, you're like, wait a minute, I haven't watched HBO in a year. Why am I still paying for that every month? I'm sorry to call out HBO, but it was true. I, so I canceled. Sarah, your it's turn. true. <laughs> I, I think more Americans are looking holistically at what they're paying for their streaming services. And what started as a relatively low bill in the early days has slowly and steadily ballooned to the point where people are saying, you know what, we're actually getting closer to what the cable bill was. And we hated that. And we went to streaming because it was cheaper and now it's not. So you, what you really see is more households being strategic about what they use and turning services on and off. So some customers that have canceled are going back, but they're being much more 
more strategic about it. So really what the streaming platforms are up against are much savvier consumers who are using the flexibility of streaming, the ability to turn it on and off to their advantage. Well, and the streamers are getting more savvy in that they used to just say, look, here's a whole show and you can watch the whole season and binge watch it if you want. So you would do your trial month or whatever and then cancel. And now the streamers are like, oh, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to slowly roll these out in the old fashioned way where you get an episode a week. That's one way. I have two questions. One, is anybody canceling Netflix? Is that is that the one that's being canceled or is it the other additional ones that where you were like, oh, three dollars, five dollars. OK, it turns out that I don't actually need that. It's a good question. So Netflix has typically had the lowest rate of customer defections in the industry, and that continues to be true. So even though they did the password crackdown, even though prices have gone up, their churn has remained relatively stable and far below their rivals. So I've heard from some users who have said, you know what, I downgraded to a less expensive Netflix plan, or I chose an ad-supported plan to bring that bill down. But far fewer Netflix customers are actually canceling. And that is actually one of the strategic coups for them over the last year, really, is getting that password sharing crackdown rights such that few customers are heading for the exits. Okay, so the ad-supported streaming platforms, like if you get a choice between whether to pay the three bucks to Amazon not to see the ads or not, do you think that that drives more defections? So the ad supported, I mean, certainly we're in that phase where Amazon has introduced the idea that commercials are coming and that always draws a certain amount of ire when you get a thing for free and then the core proposition changes. We'll see if that actually results in churn. A lot of folks have Amazon Prime video um, as part of their broader Amazon Prime subscription. Um, so we'll see if customers are willing to pay extra to not have ads versus canceling the, the holistic subscription it, altogether. It, but it turns, you know, it turns out that, you know, I'm mad about the ads, but I was watching ads on cable and paying for it for years. So there you go. That's the last call for tonight. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Shark Tank is next. 